This Much We Know is a podcast offering an honest and informative perspective of the realities and motivations of setting up a social enterprise. We will be joined by a number of charity leaders and social entrepreneurs whose trading models work to end homelessness. We will be sharing their stories, tips and of course their face palm moments. Hello Murphy, how are you? Hi Simon, I'm well, how are things with you? Not too bad. I've been pestered by my dog today. By your dog? Yeah. Let her into the office. She barks to go back out. Let her out of the <laughs> office. She barks to come back in. <laughs> I don't know if I'm coming or going, to be honest. <laughs> oh, you should have a, a surprise guest in the podcast. Uh, hopefully she won't get a guest appearance in the podcast. We shall see. I'll, uh, we'll see, we'll see how we get on. We better see how our guest gets on. Whether we need to bring her in or not, I suppose. Yes, yeah, our plan guest. Yeah, up, <laughs> up against up against the the Pickering household pet. Um, so today we're we're really happy that we've got Rich joining us from Settle. Um, Rich, what we'd like to do is is to welcome you to the podcast and ask you to introduce yourself and a bit about the organisation as well. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so I run a social enterprise called Settle which is an organisation that prevents young people from becoming homeless. So we're based in London, offices in East London, and we support young people who are coming out of the care system, but also homeless hostels to make sure that they have all the skills they need to live independently successfully. Uh, We've been going since 2015, so that's when I set the organisation up with my friend, and we work with just over 100 young people a year now. Awesome. And what kind of skills are you working with these young people? Life skills, which is very broad and can be interpreted in lots of different ways, depending on who you talk to. (laughs) Uh, But the life skills we go over, mainly things around how to manage your money. So creating budgets, what to do if you fall into debt, Uh, how to cook on a budget, that sort of thing. So that's a big element of it, but there's also a lot around how to make your house a home. So the young people we work with, this is their first time living on their own. Before that, they're often living in a residential care setting or a homeless hostel. So they they haven't had that opportunity to, to learn a lot of those life skills. Um, what happens is when they when they move out, they're often left to do a lot of these things by themselves. And, that, and that's really why we're there is to to show them and, and guide them in in picking up these skills to make sure that the issues don't snowball because they can do quickly, particularly if you don't have family or friends around to help you out. Yeah, because the stats are pretty high, aren't they? Quite startling around young people in care or young people leaving care and their transition into independent living, the stats around that not working out so well are pretty pretty scary, aren't they, actually? Um, yeah, it's, it's shocking. It's one in four young people leaving the care system end up becoming homeless within two years, which is a really shocking statistic and, and one that's been around for a long time as well. So it's not a new problem, uh, but it's one that's very difficult to, to solve because... These young people have had very difficult starts in life and and that transition is is really difficult for them brilliant it's so interesting isn't it That's the um i mean obviously we've got a common theme here around homeless sector and 
but every time we have a guest on they bring a different complex issue so it's all under that banner of homelessness but like today as a, a very different take on some of our other guests that we've had who have equally complex problems to overcome as a social enterprise but this one in particular feels like one that has been like hanging around for a while and nobody seems to be able to bring a, a better alternative or a solution to it it seems yeah it's one of those isn't it it's just been about for a while and and you know we need some social enterprises to come up in that space ideally so yes great to have you on um in terms of like what's your backstory to this rich is there like what brought you to sort of starting the social enterprise with your friend sort of six seven years ago so i studied history at uni which pointed me nowhere afterwards like a lot of people uh, all I knew is that I, I enjoyed working with young people so I, I started working at a charity called Movember a big men's health charity in their, their fundraising team and although I enjoyed that and they had a really fun working culture I felt very far removed from the problem that we were actually trying to tackle and that's when I started looking for what else was out there and came across a uh, grad program in social innovation called Year Here and that really appealed to me because it seemed really hands-on and it, there was a big emphasis of learning from the people that you're trying to find solutions to, to some of the social issues that they experience. So I, I worked in, um, I did a placement at a youth homelessness charity for six months and that was really eye-opening for me. I was in my early 20s at that point and I remember my first day in the hostel I walked into the, this day and I I'd kind of got dressed up for it so I was in quite smart like clothes like first day at the placement my shirt on polished shoes and I went in and all the staff I think uh to turn the piss out of me a little bit because <laughs> they had this kind of weary look about them like oh here's here's this guy standing up he doesn't really know what he's in for um but it yeah it was a it was a really amazing experience but really hard in lots of ways but there was 25 young people in the hostel so these were young guys who were homeless uh, about 16 to 18 years old and it was a temporary place for them while they tried to find other housing for them to move on into. But it was just such a chaotic environment uh, for everyone, staff and young people. And that really made, um, I guess, just a difficult environment for everyone to, to progress. Um, and I was working with one, one young man in particular who was studying to go to university, wanted to do maths, at Bristol and he found it such a distracting place to work because he was trying to revise for, for his exams but there was always fights and incidents kicking off in the hostel and when he found out he was going to get his new place he was really excited because that, that meant freedom um, freedom from him um, and he, he moved out into that first place and then I caught up with him a, a month later, we grabbed a cup of tea just to see how things were going. And he said that he was really struggling, which he wasn't expecting. He said he felt really lonely uh, because even though the hostels were difficult places to live, there was people around. 
and there was staff around there was other young people around but here he was just by himself and the, the reason why he was in this situation was because he didn't have a good relationship with his family so they weren't there to help out but on on top of that the transition had been really abrupt for him so he'd gone from the hostel into his new place no one had showed him what to do and he'd therefore fall behind on his bills already he didn't know he needed to set up his council tax or how to set up a direct debit to pay his rent on time so a month in he was already on the back foot and in debt um and i think just walking home after that meeting with him i was going back to my flat share with my friends we were going to play some fifa and like have a nice dinner together and the, the parallels between that and him going back to his empty flat with no furnishing and already he's facing these problems which is really stark so that that's what really led led me to setting up settle is kind of stories like that which like i said before there's so many of of those examples of young people leaving the care system around eleven thousand young people leave care each year so that that's really the reason why we decided to set up Settle is to make sure young people are supported when, when they're moving to their first place and it's not that cliff edge. Mm. I think that's a really pivotal thing that Rich that you mentioned that cliff edge and it seems to be this conversation comes up quite a lot with that transition for different support providers or different services and when we see these successful outputs in stats actually alongside it comes this isolation or you know loss of community and those and those networks that people haven't been able to build and it seems such a um you know an, an obvious thing when you when you speak about it when you mentioned that story the guy you was working with to you know if you're moving someone into independent accommodation that hasn't lived alone before that setting up bills will be included but we do forget these things and take it for granted it's it sounds like really valuable work that you're doing um and so, so organic. I think lots of the stories that we've heard from you here have been that, you know, you mentioned learning from the people that you're looking to help. And it is exactly that. It's kind of following their process with them with an extra pair of eyes to see what, what those gaps might be. Um, so yeah, really good to hear, hear from that. You mentioned that particular story and that um, interaction that you've had with that young boy. Have there been any other particular um, conversations or people that you've met throughout that journey that were pivotal, uh, pivotal in in developing Settle? Yeah, I, I mean, there's so many young people's stories. Like in for the first five years, I was working with the young people. When you set up social enterprise, you've got to be a jack of all trades. <laughs> you've got to be the the accountant, the support worker, the cleaner. So. Another young woman I was working with called Jazz, she, she, she was homeless before she moved into her first place as well. And we started working together a couple of years ago. And when I first started working with her, she was very hesitant about talking about her money. It was it was obviously like quite an emotional and sensitive issue. And I remember every time I'd bring up how things going financially for you, she would create a distraction. I, I don't think she 
was aware that I knew what she was doing, but she kept going upstairs to show me her art. And she'd be like, did you know that I, I'm a good painter? And actually I've just done a painting and she'd go upstairs to, to bring something down. And it just took a long time to build that trust between us and for her to face up to the situation that she was in, even though it wasn't her fault in a lot of ways. Um, she'd she'd received actually a, a notice from her landlord for eviction. So she was at imminent risk of being evicted. And um, when after a couple of months, really, we got to the bottom of what was going on and, and she, she owned up to what the situation was. And that was quite an important moment because it, it changed the nature of how we work with young people, but also how we work with our partners. So local authorities and housing associations are often the landlords of the young people that we work with. And we're sort of an, a middleman between the two. Because the big problem is that if you are behind with your rent, these young people are scared to call up the landlord and explain the situation, even though that's exactly what they should do. You can understand if you're an 18, 19 year old, that's quite an intimidating phone call to make. So in this situation, once she'd actually taken the responsibility of her situation and was committed to making change, we ended up organizing a three-way meeting with the landlord, ourselves and Jazz. And, um, and in that she made commitments to uh, make a repayment plan to pay back her arrears, but also meet with their staff weekly, as well as continue with the Settle program as well. And as a result of that, the landlord agreed to cancel the eviction. So she got a second chance. So that, that moment really stuck with me, I think for a couple of reasons. It was the watching her grow and, and kind of working out that there's only so much we can do and, and people do need to meet us halfway. I think a lot of us come into the social sector for very honorable and good reasons and you wanna do everything within your power to help people, but you do need them to meet you halfway and there is only so much you can do and luckily in this case she she could do that but the other the other learning around that was how we can use our partnerships with landlords local authorities housing associations um, to better support the young people that they are housing because often there are solutions to these issues but there's a lack of communication between tenant and landlord so is the model, and I'm just going to like really simplify this, the model, is that, is it as simple as rolling up your sleeves and, and sort of getting alongside young people and, and basically being there to support them over the, some of those challenges and build their trust? Is, it, is, is that, is that the, the model? And it's fine to say, yes, that is actually. Um, it, it just feels like a reasonably straightforward solution to what is quite complicated. Um, yeah, it that is it pretty much it is very simple and it always has been it's how do you support young people at that very specific moment in their lives when we know there's big risks and and big responsibilities placed upon them but they also lack the resources and the support networks that most young people have access to so how can we be there for them and roll with the ups and downs of their lives and just let them know that we are there to guide them through through that mm. yes it's fantastic really 
<laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Too many compliments coming at once. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's it, Simon, you've sort of hit the nail on the head there. It's, it seems so simple and sort of why, why have we been doing this, you know? Because it's, well, you can see the impact that you guys have made with your, you know, success rates and things. It's, it's a, it's a brilliant um, concept and clearly one that's, that's so needed. We've, we've talked a lot about working with the young people and how that sort of ideas them from there. And now you've brought in the, the work that you're doing with your partners, with local authorities, other contractors. How does that side of the, the organisation work? So that's really the business model side. Um, so there's a few different angles to it. Firstly, we need to make sure we're finding the right young people to work with. We want to support the young people that are most at risk of becoming homeless and to identify them, we need to work with partners to do that. And that's why we work with housing associations, but also local authorities is because they either house those young people and we work with them to identify which young people would benefit the most. And on the local authority side, if we work with care experienced young people, then they have statutory duty to support them and, and we work very closely with social workers but personal advisors as well to make sure that the young people who they are responsible for are getting that wraparound support so that's one angle of the of the partnerships we also get funding from our partners as well we save landlords a huge amount of money by preventing young people from being evicted and becoming homeless it costs between eight and ten thousand pounds per eviction that's made up of rent that isn't reclaimed uh, but also the time that the property is void if a young person is evicted as well as legal and court fees so there's not just like the human cost to evictions and homelessness which is obviously terrible there's also a business case for for what we do and and that's what we put forward to to our partners that we're actually preventing these problems and not only are we stopping young people from experiencing homelessness we're actually saving you time and money so it's a win-win for for everyone really yeah I've, i'm no mathematician but i just did the maths then so 100 young people and we can cut this out rich if it puts you on the spot but that's a hundred young. So if you work with a hundred young people a year, it's a million quid a year, potentially, that landlords and local authorities will be spending on that on that hundred young people that you work with. Is that yeah? That is that. Am I right there? Or is that am I a bit far fetched? Well, if they were all evicted, so what we do is we we work with partners to establish how many of their young people are being evicted. That gives us like a, a baseline or counterfactual. And then we, we work out with our young people what the eviction and tenancy sustainment rates are, and we compare the two, and that allows us to see what the difference is. And that, that's, that's like a very top level of our impact. It's the, yeah, it's kind of the hard outcome. It's like how many young people we prevented from becoming homeless, but then there's lots of steps beneath that that we measure too. So things like, the amount of rent arrears that we either prevent or help reduce uh, young people to incur, as well as how much in grants we support young people to access because they often move in and the flats are completely unfurnished. 
but last year we helped young people access six grand's worth of uh, grants to pay for things like fridges or beds or those essentials that you need. Um, and, and then the last area of impact we look at is people's confidence and how that, that changes over the programme. So that's more about the young person's individual journey and every young person is so different. So whilst one young person could be really strong on budgeting, another young person could be really weak but strong at cooking and like really enjoys cooking and cooking healthy meals and that sort of thing. So, so we tailor, tailor that to the young person. Fantastic. That was good. You managed you did very well to manage down my question then. So that was good. I was gonna I was getting all carried away. I've half written an impact report for you then. Um I guess so. Here's the question in follow-up to that, which was is much more tame and sensible this time. You'll be pleased to know. Have there been some key partners or, or individuals? I guess thinking right back to where you started this, um, were there some key people that you talked through the idea with or said rich don't do this this is madness like don't don't go here or yeah were there some sort of pivotal moments in in the early days that you look back on and think yeah that was a really that was the moment where we thought let's go for this or let's you know let's find something else to do um yeah were there any of those conversations yeah there, there were loads because the early years of setting something up there are there's so much uncertainty and and that's Part of your job is to keep a keep a handle on that without letting it <laughs> um, yeah without letting it um distract you so i mean first of all my co-founder katie uh, who i set up the organization with we had many like conversations in the first year about um i guess the the ambition behind it because we were delivering a pilot in enfield with 10 young people uh, and but we weren't sure about the future direction of it. And there's a lot of pressure that comes on you uh, as co-founders about what's your five-year plan? Like, where do you want to be in, in 10 years time? And, and we, yeah, I don't think we found that, that helpful, that pressure. You have to go through it because funders and, and partners ask about it, but we stayed really focused on just delivering the pilot well and staying really, close to working with the young people and learning about what was working. And I think that served us really well because we didn't get too carried away with the like bigger picture strategy, which of course is important and grows in importance as you get bigger. But in those early days, we just kind of stuck to what we knew and where, where we were seeing the problem crop up. Mm, that's really interesting, Rich. Just, just sort of pick up on that quickly. Is that um, focus on being present as opposed in the journey which is something that as sort of social entrepreneurs I think is quite it seems like everyone would be because it's you know more uh what's the word you know you're, you're sort of putting all of yourself into it and like you said sort of wearing multiple hats um but actually we we forget to do it because what we're thinking and strategizing and you know looking forward that actually you don't you don't necessarily maybe see what what you're doing in that moment is that learning for you something you would advise other people to do um 100 i mean the first three years of settle was just that exactly like learning about what was working we didn't have huge ambitions in, in the early days to grow we more wanted to see what the impact we were having was to so that we were confident 
in the program and, and the way that we were working before rolling it out to lots of young people because we were seeing how that was actually part of the problem in that if you go for the growth at all costs strategy then you have to make uh, sacrifices and, and often those sacrifices will either come at the quality of what you're doing or yourself like the burnout that, that you experience and and then the organization doesn't continue so so I've always almost made it a priority not to uh, look too far ahead and particularly in those early days when there is already a lot of uncertainty and risk involved. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, isn't it? And I think, yeah, you're in the sort of part youth work, youth youth sector here, and and part homeless sector. And I think in the in the former in the youth in the youth sector, I think that is what tends to happen is you you test something with like a hundred young people, and then somebody some funder comes along and says, "Great." do that with a thousand young people here you go and it's just everything that is so good about those that worked for those hundred young people is lost in that scale because it just doesn't work across huge areas and larger teams and all of that stuff that comes with it I think it's really interesting that you're like well let's let's just take it you know let's just work on the basis of what we're doing now with this group of young people is is good and let's just keep it at that I just think that's really good approach because I think we're so keen like you say you know the funders we want to see five-year strategies and big plans and and all of that stuff and I think sometimes as a sector we should go back to some of those funds and say actually we're all right with where, where we're at and where we're heading because it works for this this group um so yeah I think that's a yeah cracking answer actually really great um Murphy it's your time I'm not going to pinch it off you this episode it's time yes. for your favorite question Thank God. This is my absolute favourite. And Simon always manages to sneak in and ask it before I get to. So one of the questions that we like to ask Rich is favourite facepalm moments. Um, a, a time that you've had, maybe something you've done, a new initiative, a conversation that you've had. And you think, why on earth have I done this? Um, yeah, the badder, the better. <laughs> Over to you. Over to me. Okay, so... Right, right in the early days of Settle, when I was trying to get things off the ground, I, I'd go around London door knocking to lots of local authorities and potential customers for what we do. And there was one time that I, I went to a local authority and I, I met the person I was supposed to meet at, at the reception and she, she took me upstairs and in advance of this, I prepared all my arguments. I, I knew exactly what our price point was, like what the impact was. I prepared a presentation on PowerPoint that, that I was going to show to her as well. And she she led me upstairs and I thought I was just having a meeting with her, but then we she opens the door into the meeting room and there's six or seven other people there. And <laughs> I think now I'm, I'm used to that, but at the time I I um, was a bit daunted by that. But I was like, it's okay. I've, I've done my prep. I've got my presentation. Um, she asked if I wanted to to get my presentation up, and I got my bag to try and get my USB out, and realised that I didn't have it on me. Um, 
and at this stage I hadn't really had my uh, I guess my my sales pitch down so there's all these people facing me waiting for my my big presentation that I bigged up loads and realized I didn't have my my USB stick so I went on to to blunder my way through a sales pitch and she actually ended up calling the meeting short because I think I was so incoherent and <laughs> was doing it so badly. And she, I think she said, just go up and have a cup of tea and talk, talk about rescheduling this because um, I think it'd be better if you had a bit more information to hand. So I, I was very embarrassed by that. And I definitely learned my lesson about um, having, if you're going to prepare a PowerPoint deck, then make sure you have it on you. <laughs> yeah. did you go yeah. to the pub afterwards that would be my next stop after a visit after a meeting like that it would be right let's go to the pub absolutely <laughs> yeah I think I, I mean I think it was only 12 o'clock in the day but I probably still went to the <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's 5pm somewhere <laughs> it's fine I hate it when that sort of stuff happens yeah it's just I think we've all been through it though right that feeling and you get that sort of rock sink in your stomach don't you yeah. oh no yeah. And then there's that decision of like, do I do I try and flag this or do I do I hold my hands up? <laughs> do, I, do I come clean and just say I've forgotten yeah. it? I've stuffed up. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to hear from those seven people at that meeting if uh, if you happen yeah. to be listening. <laughs> I can't, I can't yeah, how bad was it really? He's, he's, he's seven <laughs> years down the line now, he's ready for the rematch if you wanted to get in touch. <laughs> Brilliant. Love it. It's great. The um, do you find that hard, Rich? The sales side of things now. Have you got it? Have you got it now, or is it still something you feel really awkward around? I'm, I'm, I feel much better around it. I think at the beginning I had a a misunderstanding of what it meant. I think I had in my mind like if you're a salesman, almost like a used car salesman image of your mind, and you've got <laughs> to be very pushy and like everything's got to be super slick. But over my time at set I've learned that that's actually for me that that hasn't been the most successful way of doing it and actually a lot of it's about listening to what the person you're trying to sell to wants and and just trying to find out if it's a good fit or not because I've also had situations where I've I've wanted something to work so badly that we, we've kind of gone ahead with a project that wasn't the right fit at the, at the start but we just because I wanted it to work so much, we pursued it and it didn't and it didn't work and it didn't end well. So I think a bit of experience in in doing that sort of stuff has yeah, helped help me learn what sales is is actually about. Yeah, I think that's the thing for all, all social enterprises is that it's like that aspirin bit, isn't it? About what is the problem that we're trying to fix and what's our solution? Like, and I think we do. I encounter some social enterprises that are like three or four years down the line and, and I'm like, you still haven't got this figured out even at this point. And I know it can take time, but sometimes I think you probably should have spent a bit more time at the beginning thinking about actually what are the problems that my customers have got? What are they looking to, to buy? Because you can't do that in isolation, can you? You can't just say, oh, we're going to sell, you know, this is our product, this is what we're going to sell and then not look at the potential people that are going to buy that. It, You know, it sort of is a bit, yeah i think mm. it's it's a challenging thing um and also i think social enterprises struggle some struggle at first to be to change change their thinking in terms of like this is about 
you know, we sell a number of units or we sell this product or we sell this service, we need to sell X of these a year in order to make this thing work. And I think some enterprises really struggle with that. Um, Totally. It's almost a bit of a dirty, like a lot of people in the social sector, I think particularly when you're starting out, you see sales as like almost a dirty word or making money. But then, yeah, the reality is the more money you make, the more people you can help. And and obviously you're not making profits to go to shareholders, it's getting reinvested in the organisation. So I think once you kind of make that connection, then it's easier to, to process it. Yeah, I think bringing the sort of skill sets from the commercial corporate sector in to have social impact and value is is a really exciting part of social enterprise. Um, and one that people don't really know they can do until they try, which is really, really nice to see. You mentioned sort of that listening to the, you know, what your customers need, um, which is kind of echoed in your early stage when you're doing your placements and listening to what your you know beneficiaries need. Um, which I think maybe is, uh, how do you call it, an overlooked part of developing social enterprise is that early stage of, of patience and, you know, really wanting things to happen, but being able to hold back and actually sort of wait and watch and, and see what, you know, what the landscape's saying. Yeah, I think it's really, it's very simple again, but can be overlooked. And like you said, you've got two customers in a way, whereas in most businesses you'll have one. You, you've got the the people you're trying to help, and then the people buying your the services. And with social enterprises, those two people are often different, which makes it much harder. Because if they were the same person, then they would they would experience the benefits of you working with them. So you wouldn't have to kind of demonstrate that as much as you do. Whereas obviously social enterprises, if we work with a young person and it goes really well, then there's a whole job of communicating that impact to the payer, the local authority or the, or the grant funder, whoever that is. So I th- yeah, I, I think it's really important to listen and, and take care of both of your customers in that way. Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges that we underestimate, isn't it? That you have got that, it's a two-way, yeah, you've sort of got your person buying and the and the beneficiary and you're like, yeah, you're, you're sort of working between those two. It's definitely a more difficult model of social enterprise. Where, you know, I guess it would be more straightforward, but requires more selling, that dirty word again. Um, <laughs> if you've just got a product that is one, you know, is one customer, you're selling a, a very much a product rather than a service, like you guys are, are sort of, selling or promoting um so yeah it's really interesting isn't it are there others um sort of are there other people in the in the sector at the moment that you're looking to i have this all the time in fact i'm probably having it now with settles to be honest is around like i wish i'd thought of that i'm kicking myself for not having had a go at, at that are there other enterprises that you've been watching for a while or that are coming up that you think oh they've really yeah that's good like i wish i'd come across that um yeah, there's loads, of, and I think what they a lot of them have in common is their approach to working with people, and and how that's very much led by the people they work with, and and operating a strength based model. So, Fat Macy's is is one. Meg Meg who runs that, they're doing brilliant work, and I, I was actually down at their their new restaurant in West London uh, the other week, and it, it's just amazing to see how they've grown from from that 
that idea and, and catering and supper club service and now they've actually got a restaurant and and planning to open more so and they just come up with a smart solution as well it's like they they, they saw that problem of young people being disincentivized to work um, and, and getting trapped in the the hostel system as a result of that so to offer that route out through through employment is great um switchback and if you come across them they support young people coming out of the criminal justice system i just love their again their approach because they they work with the young people where they're at and provide that real wraparound and holistic support and a lot of it's around positive narratives as well which again i think is so important and i see really bad examples of how that's done in terms of how the people you work with are portrayed in your your communications or how they're talk, talked about which i understand why it's very easy to do and you're kind of tugging on the heartstrings of donors and and but i think it can be very dehumanizing for the people that you work with and the more you can bring those two worlds to, together it's very hard to bring them completely together but the more you're kind of using the same language with with funders and your partners and, and the people you're working with, I think, um, yeah, the, the more respected the people you work with will feel and the, the better impact you'll have. Mm. It's a really interesting point, actually. I think one that we probably don't discuss enough is this idea of changing the language behind social impact, you know, but turning into asset-based approach, um, advantage thinking, you know, using these models that empower young people, the people that we're working with, um, rather than this this idea that their sort of their journeys are in an impact report and they're not real, um, you know, we should want them to be as, as much part of that as possible. Um, I wanted to go back to the question before quickly as well, with the sort of working with other social entrepreneurs and, and seeing people like Meg, who we've had on as well, and Switchback. Is there any question that you wish you'd asked people who have sort of come before you in as part of your journey um, that you thought, well, I won't ask that, you know, it's a stupid question or um, a bit too shy or, I don't know, just had, hadn't thought of it. But any key questions that you think that would have been so helpful to know? There's, I mean, there's loads. I'm trying to think about <laughs> which ones would help me the most. Um, I think on a basic level, just the, the financials about the different stages and what is a realistic budget for an organization of 10 people? Like how much do you need to cover your operating expenses and, and salaries? And, and then I think linked to that, the growth expectations, because again, what people communicate externally might be different to what's happening internally. And it's that thing of comparing your inside with someone else's outside. And, but so I think it would be, it's always helpful just to speak to different leaders about um, about the growth of their organizations but also when the organization hasn't grown and they've had to let people go or they've had difficult times because again that's it's not something you want to shout about particularly but there is definitely a, a space for that in in supporting people to set up things because it it normalizes it and then it, it it creates less pressure for people i think when they, when they do want to set something up and things inevitably don't 
always go your way, then you're not, yeah, you, you can process it personally better and mm. find a way forward. Yeah, we're not very good, are we, at talking about that, that failure bit and it's okay to have a go. It's better to have a go and fail than it is just never to try, is my philosophy. But it's really hard, but it's very, it's not very, um, in the UK, we're not very good at that, are we? saying we had a go at that and we failed like and what we also do which is really bad is because we don't share it and suppress that we watch loads of other people do exactly the same thing in exactly the same way and nobody you know nobody stops to say we really did learn quite a lot and quite in a hard way about that actually and here's what we learned in terms of when you're developing something um it's yeah it's difficult isn't it and i and i work with some enterprises now that i'm like this is familiar. Like I'm sure I dealt with an organization did this exact same routine five years ago and they did it for five years as well. And then you, it's, mm. I find that really difficult to say, yeah, you're going to have to really think this through and, you know, otherwise it's not going to work. It's, it's challenging, I think. Um, but I think that's a sector wide thing. If we were better at saying when things hadn't worked rather than what we try to do is cover it up when failure happens. Um, yeah. I think that's, something we're still heading towards we're, we're better at it in america they're better at it like you get grant makers that will publish projects that were failed that failed that were rubbish and which is you know can you imagine a grant funder doing that in the uk so we had a we had a punt on this project and it turned out to be completely hopeless um it just doesn't doesn't happen yet i don't think i think we're moving in that way i hope um but it's certainly one of the challenges and that's why murphy and i wanted to do this podcast as well hopefully to try and get people to share their stories and then other people to listen in and and you know get to see behind the scenes on some of this stuff um so it's rich it's been really good to have you on today actually really good um i, I really like what settle are doing so I, I we sort of yeah wish you well with it really um you know i think it's a hard time that somebody came up and and challenged this this issue that we have around young people in care and and homelessness it's not yeah, it's not acceptable and i think yeah it's just great to see somebody come up and say well we could we've got something to say about that and something that we can offer um so yeah fantastic having you on thank you and yeah pleasure being on and thanks for inviting me well our, our pleasure it's been yeah brilliant to hear about your journey and, and the journey of settled as well um for those who are nosy like us and um, where can we find you online website twitter instagram what's the handles Yes, so website is wearesettle.org and our Twitter is at wearesettle and Instagram is at wearesettle as well. So nice and easy, excellent. Yeah, get it easy. Fantastic. Okay, well, we'll link those for you and, and for anyone listening, we'll, they'll be up on the website. So if you want to check them out, you'll be able to do so there. Um, and any questions we get, we'll pass on to you, Rich, um, for those looking to get in touch. But it's been brilliant to have you on. Thank you so much for sharing your, your knowledge and your experience. Pleasure. Nice to see you guys. Thanks, Rich. See you soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe for more episodes or follow us on Twitter at thismuch underscore we know or email us at thismuchweknow at homelesslink.org.uk.